0: So I'm not sure what it is, but it seems like for some reason, every four years, we have a series about politics. And I haven't figured it out yet why we do that. (laughs) Actually, I know why. Uh, Today we're starting a new series called Talking Points, the perfect blend of politics and religion, because what we know is that with every election year, there's always some things that are on people's hearts and minds when it comes to navigating life in a political world. So, just to make sure that I trigger everyone in the room and everyone watching online, I just want to remind you that we are 16 days away from Election Day. That is two weeks and two days away from Election Day, so you still have 16 days of political ads and things being mailed to you. And on top of that, with the way things are this year, a lot of people are concerned that we won't even know who the next president is in 16 days because there will be ballots that still have to be counted, courts that still have to make rulings, and how those courts are arranged is a big debate right now. Um, One of the things I noticed... First of all, I didn't have to do any research to know that there's a lot of political tension right now. Like, we don't need research for that. But I was curious to see what some of the major um, polling companies were saying about this. So one of the companies I looked at is called Pew Research, P-E-W Research. They do a whole lot of stuff related to um, culture in general, but also, as you might assume, how it relates to uh, religion and faith. And so as I was reading one of the articles from Pew Research, usually they're a cut and dry. Like, here's the data, here's the quick analysis, and then they move on. There is one line in one of their articles that really caught my attention. They were talking about the uncertainty with the election and the afterfall of whatever happens, happens, and you know, they're looking at the data and just sharing what they have found, and this is what they said. They said, it is difficult to recall an election in which the public has had such a wide array of concerns about the election process and its outcome. And when a research company says it is difficult to, basically they're saying, we can't find any other years where things have been the way they are right now, with tensions, being as uncertain as they are right now. So for a few weeks here, as we head into another election year coming up, we want to take three weeks, three Sundays, to be able to pause and just take a look at religion and politics, not to sway votes, not to realign votes. That is definitely not our intent. Our intent is simply to give you a 30,000-foot view of what it means to follow God in a political country to follow Jesus while also still having the right to vote and how to interact with people who might view things differently than you and what even to do if you have a strong, moral, ethical view on a position that you feel you need to do something about. So we're we're trying to to take a, a neutral approach to this and for week number one here, what we simply want to do is set the stage by looking at how God wants us to view the relationship between the church and the government. So one of the, one of the things that I've, I've found personally to kind of figure out like where is someone leaning politically and why do they believe the things that they do is the answer to one simple question. Uh, the question is, what do you want your government to do for you? If you ask someone to answer that question, you don't ask them what, if they're affiliated with a party. You don't ask them about any issues specifically. You just ask them, well, what do you want your government to do for you? Quite often you'll see that that answer applies to a variety of different other answers in their life. Um, there's some answers, like you, you want government to do a lot for you, and on the other side, not a whole lot. And there's a difference of opinions and views as to how to answer that question. But for the sake of today... I'm not even going to entertain our possible answers to that question. I want to, I'm wondering in this message today, what did God intend for governments to do? What was his ideal? And what we're going to see today as we unpack a, a section from Romans chapter 13 is that it's not just that governments kind of happen by accident, Like, oh, some people kind of took control, and now they're in charge, and now it's just the way things are. But what we're going to see is that government was actually created by God for a very specific reason and purpose. In fact, if we want to get really technical on this, government started in the Garden of Eden with just two people. The way that God ordered and designed things, there was always a system in place of order it's just that it gets a little bit more bigger and complicated the more people that you have. So what I want to show you today is, for number one on the sheets, uh, it's simply the, 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 the idea, the truth that we're going to build on for throughout the entire message. And the whole idea is simply this, that God intended for church and state to do different things by different means. Their goal, their, their, their central goal is, is different. Each one is. And the way that they accomplish that goal is different. Not because this is just the way things naturally happen to be, but because this is the way God intended for church and government to operate. Two different kingdoms, two different nations, but the tension is that you and I are in both of them at the same time. So as we flesh out today what it means or what God intended for the state and what God intended for his church, what he wanted them to do and how he wanted them to do them, I pray it gives you some clarity, not just this election season, but in your life as a Christian, trying to navigate your way through life in God's kingdom and also in earthly kingdom. So to start, I'm going to put a couple of circles up on the screen just to visualize what we're going to be talking about because some of you guys out there are visual learners. I know that. Um, So we're going to be talking about what the church does, and we're going to be talking about what the state does and how they're both unique in what they do and how they have unique ways of accomplishing those things. But what I want to acknowledge before we get into Romans 13 is there's this middle area here. I know there's a fancy name for this chart, like when you have two circles that overlap. I can't remember what it's called. But there are some things that both the church and the state are interested in. Some issues that they both seek to do something about. Um, Maybe one is helping those in need. It is in the best interest of the state to not have a whole bunch of people who are homeless, and so they have government programs to help those who are in need. Guess what? The church is also interested in those who are in need, not so much because it benefits the state, although it does, but even deeper because helping those who cannot help you back is an exercise of your religion, your relationship with God Himself. Both are interested in that, but they both do it for different reasons and in different ways. There are some things that overlap, but the danger. The danger that I've seen in some, and I even see in myself, is to blend these two together. To put church and state so close together, next slide, that it's almost this church-state type of idea, where we want the church to do the things that the state should be doing, and we want the state to do the things that the church should be doing, and when we confuse these things, it will only lead to frustration and, and lack of communication, and it will lead to a system... In your mind and in your world, where things won't be done the way that God intended them to be done. It's important to recognize how God intended those two things to do their unique jobs in unique ways. Um, In the way that, as Thomas Jefferson put it, there is a separation of church and state that even our forefathers who wrote the Constitution recognized that there there should be this separation. And today we're going to see why in Romans chapter 13. So that's what we're going to do today. And I think this is academic enough that it shouldn't offend anybody, right? Yeah, we're not talking, I, I chose my colors carefully. This is not red and blue, so we're not, <laughs> we're not, we're not going there. Um, but what I do want to do is just as we jump into Romans chapter 13, where Paul talks about, he's going to talk a lot about the, the state, and I'll fill in some details about the church. Um, I need to give you some context for Romans, because, because the, the context here is so important as to what he's about to tell us. The context is simply this, get this, pretend pretend that Jesus was around today and one of his disciples was going to write a letter to some Christians in Washington, D.C. with some instructions about how to interact with the government. That's basically what Romans is in chapter 13. Rome was the Washington, D.C. of the day, perhaps even bigger. As the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to them, he knew that for many of them, politics was intertwined with their life in a very real way. And so he had to, for a moment, pause and talk about those things. And there's two other things to remember about these Christians in Rome. Uh, first of all, in Rome, in the 50s AD, about the time that Paul wrote this, he wrote it towards the, uh, the end of the 50s AD or maybe about 60 AD, around that time, there was a lot of tax issues going on in Rome itself where there was tax inflation, but people weren't receiving any services in return. There was a lot of controversy going on with taxes at that time to the point where both Christians and regular non-Christians were getting upset about the tax system that was going on in Rome, and people were starting to refuse to pay taxes. Um, The other thing that I think we all know is that when it comes to the Roman government, that these people were asked to pay taxes too, this was the government that executed Jesus. This was the kingdom that opposed their kingdom. And so you might even tell Paul, we should rebel, right? We cannot condone what they did. We cannot support a government that would do that. And so as Paul writes this letter, the first 12 chapters are all about what God did for them and how to start applying love for God into your life. And in chapter 13, it seems like he gets to one of the main points that he needed to talk to them about how to live in both the church and the state, and what that looks like for a country that's hostile to the kingdom of God. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1 gets straight to the point. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. The word subject to in the Greek is actually a word that Paul's going to come back to several times, but we don't see it in English. The Greek word, the the root word is "tasso," which simply means there's an ordering that has gone on. There's an arrangement from highest to lowest. Uh, In this context, an ordering of authority from the one who is highest in authority to the one who is subject to that authority. Let everyone be subject to, let everyone submit themselves to the governing authorities that are over us. Yes, the, the secular government that is over us. And as he explains why, this shares so much, not just into the Greek and Roman world in 50 AD, but it speaks so much into every other kind of kingdom and nation and constitution that would ever exist in this world. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities because they're always right, because they're God-fearing, because they'll make the world a better place. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities because, I'm going to break this up into little lines here to show there's a repetition going on, because there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, Whoever rebels against the authority rebels against what God has instituted. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say I think I get what Paul is trying to emphasize. That all authority in this world has been created and ordered and arranged by God himself. Now, here's where the what about questions start to come in and we don't have time to pursue all these maybe if you're meeting with your growth group this week this these would be some good questions to go to go through but like what about like a Nazi Germany type thing like is that a legitimate government established by God Um, what about um, you know all these other governments that have done some horrible things with some horrible ideals are they also (laughs) some people that we should submit to well all I'm going to say is is this When it comes to respecting the authorities and the authorities that God has placed over us, you will not usually be in a position to change what they do. But you may be in a position to not do what they ask you to. I'll just give you one quick example of this. In uh, the book of Acts, this would have been 20 years before Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. Perhaps even as Paul was writing these words, he was thinking of uh, an exception to this rule. The apostles, Peter and the others, were just starting to share the news to people about this this crazy story that a guy named Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and that he actually did it. And people saw him alive again. Peter and the, the apostles were preaching Jesus to all the people around them. But then they came up against some government officials who told them to stop. I'm going to open up to Acts chapter 5 just to give you the quick story. So the apostles were brought in before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. The Sanhedrin was not just some government that had established itself. The high priest was not just a person who said, Hey, we need a high priest and I'm going to be in charge. These governing entities were established by God himself in the Old Testament. The way he ordered the government of Israel... It meant that there was a, a judge court called the Sanhedrin, that there was a high priest who oversaw it all, and there was an order there that God himself had established. And so, as Peter and the apostles stand up in front of them, they recognize this is not just some human institution. If there was a government That God had ordained, this is it. So they were questioned by the high priest. He said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. They intentionally, they don't even want to say the name Jesus. Yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man, again, Jesus, blood. Translation, you need to cease and desist everything you're doing or else or else the power of this court will be over you. You will be judged as guilty. So how would Peter and the apostles react? Quite simply, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than human beings. They weren't able to change the mind of the court. They weren't able to change the views of the high priest, but they were in charge of how they reacted to the commands that were given to them. And that's how it is with life in two kingdoms. You cannot change the government you're under. It has been established by God. Maybe your position includes, uh, maybe there are some government officials uh, in, in, the, in the room or watching online. Maybe we have a president of the United States watching. I doubt it. But if that were you, I would say that there is a, there's a weight to your calling. And maybe you have the God-given influence to change things in your area. But for the vast majority of people who are watching and listening to this message, There's an order that God has established, and the command given to me and to you is to submit to it. Not because it's perfect, but when it comes to those exceptions where it's time to reject the authority handed down, two quick things. It will be obvious It will be a matter of conscience where there's a a very sharp disagreement between what you're being told to do and what God has asked you to do. And then also, um, the authorities that are put in place by God will have to answer to some God someday. You might not have the position to change things, but they will have to answer to God someday. They were put there by him, and they are accountable to him. The long story short of this What we get from the book of Romans is that the Christians in Rome did not have a perfect government over them by any means. And yet Paul told them, by inspiration of God himself, submit yourselves to the governing authorities, not because they're good, not because they're perfect, but because they're there by God's blessing. Can you imagine a life with no authority? Here's where we get to broaden this. It's not just a political thing, but in every situation of life, everyone has some authority over them. Can you imagine a household where there's a toddler and a parent, and there's no authority? <laughs> like the toddler or the, the, the adult, the parent, they just give some suggestions like, hey, you probably shouldn't touch the stove, but who am I to you know, you know, tell you what you should do? And What would life be like with no authority, What all of us know is that as great as our parents can be, they're never going to be perfect, but they are still a blessing and they are still there because God has instituted authorities in our life. So the takeaway from this, number two, imperfect authorities are a gift from God. What if you took time to thank God for the imperfect authorities that have been in your life, whether we're talking in the household or all the way up to the top levels of government? Whether you agreed with them or not. Whether they're currently in office or they were in office in the past. What if you were to thank God for the gift of authority, even when it was imperfect in your sight, in your opinion, in your mind? I think it would change the way that we view our life in this world. Because you know what? God hasn't placed all of us in those positions. And that's a big burden to carry. There's a lot of decisions that would make someone unpopular. But instead of Instead of being against, what if we were for? Instead of rebelling in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, what if we were for? Submit to your governing authorities because they are placed there by God himself. So Paul is going to go on here. We have to keep moving. He's going to share some ideas for what it looks like to do this and the consequences of not doing this. And as he does so, he's going to flesh out for us more specifically what God intended government to do and how that's different from what God intended church to do. So we're going to look at verses 2 and 3, Romans 13. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Rebelling against the government authorities will put you in judgment. Well, judgment from God or judgment from the governing authorities? Yes. (laughs) If you rebel against them, uh, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, so be aware. And also, if you rebel against something that God has put into place, it's as if you're rebelling against God himself. So Paul is making a, a rational conclusion here. If God put them into place... Rebelling against them is the same as rebelling against him. He goes on, verse 4. He says, Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? And everyone said, Yes. So here's what you have to do. Next, Next verse. He said, Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. The Roman government was God's servant to do good for those Christians living in Rome. They were God's servant. He's going to repeat that title a few times. A servant of God, whether they know it or not. So, do what is right and you'll be commended. Um, quick story. So, um, have you ever been pulled over for doing the right thing? I, I, we, I got pulled over for that once. We were boating with some friends and uh, the the what do you call them? The boat police? I, I'm, I don't go boating very often. Um, they, they pull up around us. They put on their lights. They pulled us over, which is unusual when you get pulled over in a boat because you don't really pull over. You just kind of stop in the water. But they pulled us over and they, they rewarded us because our kids were wearing life jackets. So we got some free uh, coupons for Dairy Queen. We were commended for doing what was right. And I don't think it happens too often but what does happen with our government is that they incentivize good things that help people in general. They give tax breaks for things that help communities and help states. They incentivize good behavior because that's how they can work. They, they can distribute things that commend people. But the opposite is also true, as, as Paul goes on here. He says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants. Again, he uses that word, God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. They use the sword to level the playing field and to bring justice where there was no justice. So, we're starting to get a feel for how the state is designed to do things the church is not designed to do in a way that the church was not designed to do it. The, the, church, the, the, the state carries the sword to punish those who do wrong, to intimidate people using fear to not do things that would be bad for the whole. And so Paul wraps up this conclusion. They commend who do, those who do good. They punish those who do wrong. There is a, they, they, they operate by fear and reward. Therefore, Paul continues, he says, therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Because you recognize that not only can they punish you for failing to do whatever they ask you to do, but because they are in place by God himself. God has instituted this as his servant to watch over the public good by using praise and by using punishment. And then, I think this is where Paul gets to the primary thing that he's been wanting to get to. He says this. Here's the practical application for those in Rome. He says, this is also why you pay taxes. Four, the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. And what every follower of Jesus knows is that when someone gives you something, the natural response is to reflect something back to them. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And as Paul wraps this up, he simply leaves that as his application for those Christians in Rome, to apply it to their circumstances and their situation. And I'm wondering how we would apply this to ourselves today. My feeling, I don't don't have all of your IRS records, but my feeling is that most of us kind of get the whole idea of paying taxes. We're kind of afraid to not do it. I'm sure there's some people listening who are maybe some years behind or maybe even some who refuse to pay them, but I think for the most part, we kind of get the whole tax thing, so this isn't really a a proper application for most of us today. But I think the, the conclusion to that is very applicable. Whatever you owe them, Pay them. And in another letter, Paul actually brings this up again, maybe another application to what it means to submit to those in authority. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to a, a young pastor. He was actually looked down on because he was so young, but he is a young pastor named Timothy. And as Paul wrote to him, he said that it's important to serve the people who are around you. It's also important to pray. And Paul said, when it comes to prayer, there's something you can't forget. This is what Paul said. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Those are are easy to skip over, but there's so much in those four things. Putting yourself in the place of someone. Seeking God's help on behalf of someone. Thanking God for someone. There's so much in those four words. That those be made for all people. And then he gives a special application. Pray for kings and all those in authority. Pray for them. And how he ends is so important. Pray for them so that they will make the country a better place. No. Pray for them that it would be more God-fearing. No. Pray that our country goes back to God. No, that is not the role of government. Pray for those in authority. That, here's how he really ends it, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The role of the government is not to bring people back to God. When it comes to authority, the nation is under God, yes, but it is not the role of government to make people follow God or to make them out of fear seek God. The role of the government is to simply give us quiet and peaceful lives so that we, the church, can do what only we, the church, can do, which is to focus on godliness and holiness as a reflection of what we, are, we have been given by God himself. There's two different things we're looking at here. What the church can do and what the state can do. God intended them for, to do different things by different means. And To help solidify all this, maybe for all the visual learners. I'm not picking on the visual learners today. I am a visual learner. So I'm going to put a little chart up here quick just with church and state. And just from these two quick sections, what we can see God intended for both of them to do. When it comes to church and state, kind of the the big thing that we're looking at is that the state is here to... Next slide. Uh, To give us quiet and peaceful lives. If the government is doing what God intended the government to do, the result is going to be we have quiet and peaceful lives. The church, our goal is godliness and holiness. And we're going to get to why in just a minute. But the outward result, if the church is doing what the church was designed to do, people would be living godly and holy lives as an application of what God has done for them. And maybe just a quick thought on that. If the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, it'll make the state's job a whole lot easier. Second thing, the role of the state is to make bad people good. The role of the church is to make dead people alive. The role of the state is to make bad people conform to certain laws and guidelines that will be for the welfare of the entire people. And they can use fear, they can use praise, they can use incentivizing, they can can use punishments. The, the, The state can use a lot of different things to get people to be good. The church is all about making dead people alive, spiritually dead. Not just an outward behavior that we have to model or conform, but an inner life that is brought into us. The third thing. The state is all about commending the good and punishing the bad. That's their objective. The church is all about repenting of sin and showing fruits of forgiveness. An internal thing. The state is focused on the external behavior. The church is focused on the internal fruits that are coming out of people's lives. And then finally, how does all of this happen? There's two tools that we see here. Church, I'm sorry, the state is given the sword. What does the church have? A word, a message. The sword is designed to strike fear and intimidate. The message, the gospel, is designed to elevate and highlight the problem of sin, but also to bring life. And healing. When you understand these two kingdoms for what they are and what they're supposed to do and how they do it, it will give you such clarity as you envision what your ideal picture of government will be. But the takeaway from all this, number three, is that you shouldn't expect one to compensate the other If one is not doing its job, the other cannot step in and do it for them because the tools are different, the mission is different, and the means are different. We have to keep those two things in our minds isolated. I think we can celebrate and elevate and really make a big deal about the, the, that little cross-section where church and state overlap on some key issues. And that's always interesting and amazing to see what church and state can do together. But for the most part, our overall mission and how we accomplish that is different by design. This is the way God intended government to work. And church to work. And to close, I want to give you one quick story. This is from, this is from the life of Jesus. This is uh, John chapter eighteen, where um, Jesus has just been arrested. He was about to be crucified, but before he could be crucified, he had to be tried. He had to be put on trial. And so, first of all, he went to the Jewish government, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and Jesus had to answer to them. And then, since the Jewish government could not execute under Roman law, the the Jews sent him to Rome, or to the Pilate, to be tried in front of Rome itself. So just get this. Literally, the head of the church, Jesus, is being tried by a head of the Roman government. And what happened in that, it's not even a face-off, what happened in that exchange is so, so interesting. Here's what Jesus said in verse 36. He said, My kingdom, you've got your kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would act just like your soldiers are acting right now. They would have weapons, they would have clubs, and they would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. If I really did have a kingdom like yours, I would not be here right now. But my kingdom is from another place. Jesus had such remarkable clarity about the differences between his kingdom and any earthly kingdom that he was willing to submit to his governing authorities even when he didn't have to and even when everything was at stake. And yet he knew when to say no to the orders that were given to him by his authority. He recognized the difference and thankfully That's why we are here today. The kingdom that Jesus established for you was not one where he intimidates out of fear. You better be good. You better behave. You better conform. That is not the kingdom that Jesus established. His kingdom was established because of God's kindness and his grace. He who had no sin became sin for you. He who was elevated to the very top submitted himself to you. The kingdom of Jesus is very different than the kingdom of government. And because of that, we have hope and we have life. And so my question for you, my application is simply to call into question what you've been expecting and what you've been wanting your government to do for you. Maybe you're completely lined up with church here and state here and you have a proper appreciation for those two things and how they work. Maybe you've been expecting some things from your state, your government, that are really in the category of the church. and Maybe you've been expecting some things from the church that are really in the category of the government. Would you just call into question what you've been expecting? And as you think about those two things this election year, what I know is that as you see the way that God intended both of those things to work and operate, it will give you a focus to do what God has called you to do as part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I pray for all those in authority. And that's a really broad term because I think to some degree, just about everyone has some degree of authority but in the, in the heart of this specific series, I pray for all those who are in official positions as, as members of, of, the, of the government, whether that's federal or state or local, I pray that you would give them the tools and the ability to do what you've called them to do. Give them the wisdom to make decisions that are for the best of all the people around them that they serve. Give them the humility to be able to listen to the needs of the people and to act accordingly. And just bless them with strength and with health and with the ability to carry out their offices to the best of their ability. I pray for the work that we as the church get to do, that we don't have to f- use fear or intimidation. We're not all about conforming outward behavior, we are about celebrating the transformation that only you can do on the inside. I pray that you would use us as the church to bring about an inner transformation first within us and then to share that with others so that when it comes to the work that our government, the state, has to do, there's really nothing left to do because we are people who follow you and submit to the authorities that you've placed over us. This isn't going to be an easy couple of weeks as we gear up for election day. There's going to be controversies and rumors of controversies. There's going to be headlines that try to instill fear in us. I pray that you would guide us through this. Help us in Romans chapter 13 to focus on the fact that you are the one in control. And may that give us peace as we simply live out the calling that you've given to us, your church. I pray all those things in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.